Good evening. Um, I, I should add my welcome to this, this wonderful venue. This is a, a step in a westward direction for Gresham College, and I hope it's going to, I'm sure it's going to bear fruit. It's wonderful to be in such a marvelous cinema as the Cine Lumiere, and to be able to follow this talk about uh, Powell and Pressburger with um, a film. Not just extracts, but a complete film. So, um, a talk about um, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger obviously uh, shouldn't start at the beginning. If you know any of their films, you know that they never start at the beginning. If you follow the, the dreamlike logic of many of the films, it should probably start at the end, or even later. Um, and uh, in fact, Powell showed the way uh, when he um, ended the second volume of his memoirs, uh, Million Dollar Movie, with uh, a passage which appears to tell of a visit to Emmerich Pressburger at his Suffolk retreat, Shoemaker's Cottage. It's Shoemaker's Cottage, uh, photographed uh, when I, I first encountered Emmerich by writing to him and uh, going to see him in 1977, I believe. And that's pretty much what Shoemaker's Cottage looked like. In this passage, Michael has Emmerich explain what the secret of their partnership was. You and I know what it means. The only secret is that we are amateurs. Telling a story is not a business, it's an art. We're different from other artists because we were left alone by Arthur Rank for 10 years to go our own sweet way, thinking we were professionals. Now that imagined visit is actually dated to the day of Emmerich Pressburger's death in February 1988. And it was published five years later after Michael Powell's own death in Million Dollar Movie. So it's, it's a very ingeniously constructive, fictive reflection on their relationship from beyond the grave as it happened. And like the endings and the beginnings of many of their great films, it offers a, an enigmatic clue to what made their work remarkable and almost certainly unique in 1940s cinema. Both Powell and Pressburger had benefited from a hard schooling in film construction during the 1930s. Emmerich Pressburger was sleeping on park benches in Berlin as a refugee, uh, in effect, um, in 1929, when he managed to sell a story to Ufa, the great German film company. And that transformed his life. Uh, he would go on to become, uh, this is the first film that he wrote for Ufa, uh, Abshid, um, a very ingenious film that is set in real time. It's a sound film, so he began in the sound era, uh, and it's already a very cleverly constructed film. From Germany, Emmerich was forced to move, of course, as many were when Hitler came to power in 1933, and he went to Paris. And he joined the French, uh, the, the Parisian French film community, uh, and began to write scripts. He had to change language, of course. He had started off in Hungarian. He had had his education mostly in German. Um, he had worked in Germany. Now he had to start all over again in French. But he wrote a number of films. The problem, he said, was getting paid. You could write the script, your script could get made, 
but it was very difficult to get paid by uh, French producers. He said the trick was to go along to the races, and if they'd won something on the horses, you might get paid. I think he might have been, you know, hamming it up a little in saying that. But no, the, the truth was it was very difficult. It was a precarious existence uh, in the mid-1930s. And despite making really quite high-profile films, like this film, uh, La Vie Parisienne, which is, a, again, a very ingenious film. It's by no means a straightforward version of Offenbach's opera. Uh, Emmerich uh, already was beginning to get some status in the French industry before he realized, of course, that this probably had no future, the way the politics of Europe were going, and he decided to make one further um, move, and he came to London. He came to London, and it was a, a change of language, again, a change of industry, a change of personnel, but he was helped by the fact that the person who was at the center of British production, certainly British quality production, in the mid-1930s was Alexander Korda, a fellow Hungarian. Uh, there were many jokes about the number of Hungarians that Korda employed in his company, London Films. He didn't have to be Hungarian, but it helped. And um, it's true that the Hungarians that assembled around Korda had particular talent for reworking uh, film stories, for coming up with interesting twists on established genres. And Emmerich Pressburger joined that company of contract writers, very humble level. He wrote a number of scripts while under contract to Corda, some of which got made, some of which got made later. It was during this period that he actually wrote the very first version of what would later become The Red Shoes uh, at Corda's request. And of course, it's interesting when you look at images like this. This is Corda absolutely at the center of the social world in London as he aimed to be at the center of the social world everywhere. He had offices on Piccadilly. No normal film company had offices there. Um, he wanted to raise the status of cinema in Britain. And he already started to move in very uh, prestigious circles. There are many, many stories about the influential people that he got to know and helped during that period. And interestingly, he called his company London Films, taking Big Ben as its symbol. So he was making a statement about this being a distinctly English enterprise with London at its center. If we look at the other member of the partnership, Michael Powell, Michael Powell had a different kind of start in film. He began uh, with a passion for film, uh, which he couldn't see how to break into in the late 1920s. He was working as a bank clerk. Um, his father, however, had stayed behind in France after the war and um, had established himself in the south of France. And Michael got his father to introduce him to the film people who would hang around in Nice. The reason that they congregated in Nice was because quite an important studio, the Victorine studio, uh, was running at this time. And one of the most important companies uh, at the Victorine was in fact a kind of offshoot of MGM, or to be more precise, of Metro-Goldwyn. You'll see if you look carefully at that poster, it doesn't say MGM, it says Metro-Goldwyn, because Rex Ingram, who headed this company, had a long-standing disagreement with Louis B. Mayer, and he was not going to become part of MGM. That's why he left Hollywood after some big successes there, 
and had taken up residency at the Victorine Studios with Alice Terry, his wife and star. So Michael was able to join, um, to worm his way into, really, this company. It was like being in a Hollywood company, but it was in the south of France. And he learned the film business by doing just about every job that you could do in the studio. He did everything. An ideal way to learn about how films were made. He came back to Britain uh, at the beginning of the uh, 1930s. The sound revolution was underway. British production was reviving because of the quota system, which uh, obliged exhibitors and distributors to make a proportion of British films. Suddenly, there was an incentive to make British films because you couldn't show American films if you didn't have a British film to go with them. And many, many small companies mushroomed in Britain during the early 1930s to fulfill the quota requirement. But in doing so, of course, they gave employment to virtually the entire uh, personnel who would become the next generation of British filmmakers. And Michael Powell made an astonishing number of films. He made 24 films in the uh, years from 1930 through until 1936, 37. Um, four or five a year on very, very, um, tough terms. The films had to be delivered to a budget on time. There was very little money for any um, decoration or hesitation. Most of them were quite short, but it was an ideal training in many ways for a future filmmaker to learn um, in this hard scrabble world. Everything changed when he decided to take a gamble on making a personal film. He had carried around in his wallet uh, for some years a newspaper cutting about the evacuation uh, of the island of St Kilda. And he decided to um, make a film about the evacuation of one of the Scottish islands. And this became his film, The Edge of the World, a real expedition film made uh, not in the Hebrides, as he had thought originally, but actually in, in Fula, a very remote island indeed. Uh, the film got very favorable press notices from some of the critics in 1936 and 37. And Michael Powell's agent, Christopher Mann, made sure that Alexander Corder saw the film. And because Corder saw The Edge of the World and saw this was a young man of promise and ambition, he took him on for a year's contract. So we have a situation in 1930, late 1938, early 1939, where these two young men who have not met are both under contract to Corder. There's not, it's not obvious that their careers are going anywhere special until, perhaps in desperation, um, uh, Corder had the idea of putting them together. And he put them together to work on a project which he uh, owned and which he was dissatisfied with the development of. Uh, this is a particularly handsome poster which I happen to own. It was given to me as a, as a present some years ago. It's the, it's the French poster for The Spy in Black, a uh, very handsome uh, uh, piece of graphic. And you can see on that that although it's being made as a corda uh, film, the producer is listed as Irving Asher. Irving Asher was, in fact, a uh, young American who had come to Britain as part of this boom in production and would head Warner's activities for a time in Britain. And his paths would cross and recross with um, Powell over the next 10 or 15 years. The 
job that Emmerich Pressburger was set to do was how to take the scripts, the two scripts that had already been written, and how to turn them into something workable. Um, Corder felt that the scripts that had been written were distinctly unsatisfactory, and he wanted to produce a more exciting script. Pressburger came along with a radical rewrite which completely redistributed the parts and the action of the film. And uh, as soon as he read the script, Michael Powell knew that this was somebody who, had, who understood filmic construction in a completely new way, new at least in terms of the conventions of British filmmaking. So I'm going to show you the opening of The Spy in Black because it seems to me that this is the most perfect demonstration of Pressburger's ability to take control of the material to give it wit, humor, point, uh, and really open a film in a way that was not normal in British production at this time. So this is the beginning of The Spy in Black, just after the credits. So now we know them. Reception? Peggy Moretti. I we want, want a room. room. I want a room for my wife and myself. Sorry. For love. But we were only married today. He has to join his ship tomorrow. 29. I may have to turn you out. Come on then. Register first. Captain Hart. You'll need a diving suit orderly. He's still at sea. You 29 came to moorings an hour ago, sir. Who'd be a U-boat, Captain? Let us try to come, sir. Come up to my room. Very good, sir. Lottie, Captain Richter wants another manicure. Room 46. I know. Well? Captain Hart, report to headquarters immediately. He hasn't arrived yet. What is his room number? 54. Have you seen him? Not for 16 days. You know him by sight? No. Well, try the Turkish baths in the Königstrasse. The Turkish baths down in the Königstrasse. Hello, Hans. Captain Merrill. 54, Captain Hart. Cigarettes. Sorry, Captain, we're sold out. Again? Plenty of tobacco. And I've got a beautiful pipe. That's only six marks. Nothing doing, Hans. I never smoke a pipe. Come on, Schuster. Bath and shave before we eat. Do you think any food chips? Four. Makes me hungry to think of it. Sixteen days without a smoke. This is absolutely perfect. Food first. Cigar said it's best after dinner. You're always right, sir. Back again, Captain. Congratulations. A table for two? And a meal for ten. I'll put you in the alcove. They're just going. Felix, darling! After dinner, Schuster. Now listen, Fritz. 
We've been 16 days on that submarine. That makes 48 tins of sardines, 768 beastly little fishes. I could eat a horse. He probably will. Sorry, gentlemen. It's a meatless day. Well, then, uh, we'll have uh, roast goose, a turn of foie gras, apple strudel, plum pudding, big as a depth charge. Oh, gentlemen, please. Here is the menu. Thank you. What's it? Jerk boiled fish? Carrots, beetroot, potatoes? No potatoes, sir. Bring us a pile of bread and butter. Uh, no butter, sir. We may have margarine tomorrow, perhaps. So, we pave the sea with the finest food the world produces. And when we return to port, they give us boiled fish and carrots. I agree. Captain Hart, message from headquarters to report immediately. And so, Comrade White, as Captain Hart, is launched on his spy mission, which will take him to uh, Orkney, to Scapa Flow. I went to Orkney several weeks ago. I felt I always wanted to see Orkney. There's not a lot of Orkney in the film, but uh, that is Scapa Flow, <laughs> with the remnants of the, the scuttled ships um, that actually date from the First World War when the German Grand Fleet uh, was scuttled um, after the armistice. Um, what, and this photograph, which I um, owe to, to uh, uh, Kevin MacDonald, Emmerich Pressburger's grandson, is a photograph from the family album of apparently just after Powell and Pressburger had finished The Spy in Black, looking, I think, rather pleased with themselves, knowing, I think, that they'd pulled off something um, quite remarkable. So what Pressburger had done was to radically reorganize the material, which came from a, a novel, actually, by an Orkney-based um, writer, historian, antiquarian, called Stora Clouston, and he had turned it into a very modern, very knowing, very... Uh, teasing spy story. Captain Hart is an on honorable, upright man who doesn't want to be a spy, who wants to be regarded as a, a German officer who's on a dangerous foreign mission. And he has been trapped, or is walking into a trap which has been set by the British to um, entrap him uh, with Valerie Hobson as the bait, as it were, impersonating a, a schoolmistress who has meanwhile been kidnapped um, in Orkney. The actual plotting is rather complicated, but this, the essence of the story is very clear. There is an attraction between these two figures, and what Pressburger had done was to introduce really a very strong sense of romantic attraction between the spy and his uh, nemesis. Um, outside of their countries being at war, 
we do feel as we watch the film and as we watch the chemistry of these two really remarkable actors, um, that they would have fallen for each other under other circumstances. And in a sense, you could say that Powell and Pressburger had in some way also fallen for each other through the experience of making this film, as if they recognized some quality in the other which they guessed might make their collaboration stronger. I was privileged uh, to, to know both of them during the late 1970s and throughout the 80s, and in fact until their, their deaths. Um, and I was able to help bring a number of their films back into circulation. Um, this photograph um, was taken when we managed to premiere the reconstruction of the life and death of Colonel Blimp. And I'll be saying a lot more about that in the next session here. But it's worth reflecting that Blimp was literally unseeable in anything like its original form until this moment in 1985. Um, it had completely dropped out of circulation. It had been reordered, restructured, cut. And everything that we now know about the film, it's a very widely regarded film, really stems from this moment of rebirth in 1985. And it was a great moment of pride for Emmerich in particular, who loved this film perhaps more than any other that they made. And I was able to witness during these years uh, how this affection between the two was still very present, nearly half a century after they'd met, and after many years when their films had been completely forgotten and almost impossible to see. The 1980s would see a whole series of discoveries and restorations, which gave the, the films of the Archers, that many of you will know, back to the world. During the 1970s, the early 1970s, it was almost impossible to see any of them, except at a very few places, such as the Electric Cinema uh, on, on Portobello Road. To go to the Electric was often your only chance of seeing a Powell Pressburger film before the days of video, obviously. And when the lights went up during their double bills and triple bills, you would sometimes see some quite surprising people lurking in the stalls. There was a number of people certainly, who valued the films and would take any opportunity to see them. And they weren't all the, the predictable people by any means. A lot of young independent filmmakers would go and see the films. This was the only way you could see them. As late as 1978, though, uh, I had to persuade the National Film Theatre to um, show a complete retrospective of their films. Um, they weren't really very keen on showing more than half a dozen of the best ones. What followed this was a kind of tidal wave of um, rediscovery and of enthusiasm that made Powell and Pressburger belated celebrities. They were fated at many tributes and retrospectives all over the world. This is the press notice from the big retrospective in New York, which was preceded by Martin Scorsese um, re-releasing Powell's late film, Peeping Tom, that became part of the general celebration of Powell and Pressburger. And this little book that I produced in 1978 to accompany the retrospective at the NFT um, enjoyed a wide circulation because it really was the only source of information about this pair and all their collaborators at this time. In some ways, I'm tempted to think that it's a little bit like if we step outside of cinema, it's a little bit like the British rediscovery of Turner, J.M.W. Turner, the painter, who had been largely forgotten with the flux of new art, new modernist art at the beginning of the, 
of the 20th century and was then gradually rediscovered by the British as actually being a part of world-class art. This, I think, is very similar to what happened with Powell and Pressburger. Let's go back to that moment in 1939, though, when The Spy in Black had just been released. A month later, Britain was once again at war with Germany. And within six weeks, a German U-boat had torpedoed an elderly British battleship at Scapa Flow. Events were making Powell's and Pressburger's film seem almost too topical. And the idea of its hero being a German submarine commander still seems unlikely, even if the setting was World War I. But all of the films that they would make together in the following seven years took an oblique, sometimes eccentric, but always topical view of what the war was about and what lessons uh, Britain needed to learn if it was to uh, successfully fight the war. They were certainly propaganda, but of an unusually intelligent kind, which is why they remain fascinating for audiences many years later. So how did Powell and Pressburger manage to work together in the early years of the war? Well, this wasn't due to support from either Alexander Corder or even Arthur Rank at first. The actual production of the early films they made together is much more complex and um, less well known. It was initially through sheer ambition and audacity. Uh, I think we've jumped ahead a little bit there. Those are the films that they would make together during the seven years that I was talking about. Let's just go to this slide. A Ministry of Information had been created um, at the beginning of war, and improbably the art historian Kenneth Clark was briefly at the head of its films division. That's Kenneth Clark showing members of the royal family around the National Gallery. He was a very young director of the National Gallery, and I suppose somebody in Whitehall probably thought, ah, pictures, he must know about pictures. So he became head of the films division. He didn't actually know anything about pictures in that sense, but he did know talent when he saw it. And Michael Powell had the brilliant idea of going to the Ministry of Information and asking them if they would back a proposal to make a film set in Canada, which is the film that you're going to have a chance to see uh, later this evening. It's um, the result of initial funding, seed funding, as we would say today, by the Ministry of Information, which allowed Powell, Pressburger, and a small team to travel to Canada, to travel right across Canada, to understand something about the checkerboard pattern of communities from many different backgrounds. That was the main thing that they took away from their experience of Canada, and of course the immensely varied landscape. They were very excited by what they saw, and they started work on a script. Uh, Emmerich Pressburger would win his only Oscar, in fact, for the script that he wrote for the film. The film is known in North America as The Invaders, which is perhaps more, more direct. And there you see a poster for it, a, a rather um, catchpenny poster, which gives a totally misleading impression of what um, Glynis Johns and Laurence Olivier are doing in the film. They don't, in fact, appear in the same sequence at all. <laughs> but, you know, you've got to sell a film. That photograph in the middle is Laurence Olivier watching rushes of the film uh, with Vivian Lee, because, of course, Olivier had become um, a very big celebrity because of his well, elopement, in effect, with Vivian Lee um, at this time. But the film is essentially a film about the terrain, the landscape of um, 
Canada. And the 49th parallel is the, the dotted line that separates Canada from America. It includes, very interestingly and very importantly, um, a lot of material about Nazi Germany. Uh, it includes a German newsreel, for instance. It includes um, a very uh, clear and straightforward presentation of what members of the Nazi party um, believed and what they were willing to, 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 to produce as, as exhortation when they felt they were in um, like-minded company. Alexander Corder, I have to say, was working on the same project. Um, let me just show you. Uh, uh, at the same time, he also was trying to make a film that would advance Britain's case. His solution was to take um, Olivier and Vivian Lee to Hollywood and to make a film called That Hamilton Lady, which is a film about Nelson, Britain's official greatest hero, and how Nelson faced the threat of an earlier continental dictator in the shape of Napoleon. And that film was successful too, but Corder was nearly um, prosecuted in America for uh, making propaganda in favor of America entering the war. It was a risky business. 49th Parallel walked a different path by saying, look, it can happen to Canada. Surely it could happen to America. But most of all, and I want to show you an extract from the film, most of all, it gave Pressburger and Powell a chance to put in front of an audience what Nazism stood for and how it could be countered not only by Democrats, Canadians, but also even by Germans or people from German-speaking backgrounds. So this is the great scene where the little band of refugees from the U-boat that has been blown up, because this also starts with a U-boat, um, how they, they assume they're among friends when they go to the Hutterite community in Canada. Sorry, sorry I'm late, Peter. Barbarina, there's an electric storm playing all around us, frightening the animals and your chickens. Move over, Philip. What about you, Anna? Andreas, huh? one of our guests is speaking. Eh? What? Oh, good. We were discussing the Habermans. I was about to say, you have one clear choice. Where there is a question of blood, where one is governed by the deepest of racial instincts, then every other consideration is swept aside. Men like yourself, German or of German ancestry, Rise up with all the might and power of the great German people behind you. Conscious of the sacred duty that binds us all together and in the knowledge that he who does not forget his people will not by his people be forgotten. There is a new wind blowing from the east. A great storm coming across the sea. A hurricane which will sweep aside all the old outmoded ways of life and mark the beginning of a new order not only for Europe but for the whole world. Let those beware who would have the temerity to stand in his way. They will go down before his irresistible impulse and be crushed out of existence. But for those who accept the new order, for those who perhaps belong to it already, why need I use these parables of speech any longer? I mean, all of you here tonight. Yes, you, brothers. I call you brothers and proudly acknowledge you as such. You who form the little stronghold of our people here in Canada, you will have your share of the happiness and prosperity that is waiting for us all. When the storm is over and the sun rises, that mighty sun, which will give us everything we need in life. 
What son are you talking about, friend? I am talking of the greatest idea in history. The supremacy of the Nordic race, the German people. I am talking of the being whose name I am certain lives in every heart, whose name hangs on all our lips. Whether we can shout it to the world or only whisper it in one another's ears. Germans! Brothers! I ask you to join with me in paying homage to our glorious Führer, Heil Hitler! Heil Hitler! I don't ask where you come from or what brought you here. Although you've left us in no doubt as to your beliefs. Someone has given you, no doubt deliberately, a completely false impression of us. We are only one amongst many foreign settlements in Canada. There are thousands of them in this part of the world. And they've been founded some recently, some 80 years ago by people who left their homes in Europe because of famine, because of starvation, because of racial and political persecution, and some, like ourselves, because of their faith. Some came only to find new land, new boundaries, a new world. But all have found here in Canada the security, peace, and tolerance, and understanding which in Europe it is your furious pride to have stamped out. You call us Germans. You call us brothers. Yes, most of us are Germans. Our names are German, our tongue is German, our old handwritten books are in German scripts. But we are not your brothers. Our German is dead. However hard this may be for some of us older people, it's a blessing for our children. Our children grow up against new backgrounds, new horizons. And they are free. Free to grow up as children. Free to run and to laugh without being forced into uniforms, without being forced to march up and down the streets singing battle songs. You talk about a new order in Europe. The new order. Where there will not be one corner, not a hole big enough for a mouse, where a decent man can breathe freely. You think we hate you, but we don't. It is against our faith to hate. We only hate the power of evil which is spreading over the world. You and your Hitlerism are like the microbes of some filthy disease, filled with a longing to multiply yourselves until you destroy everything healthy in the world.
We are not your brothers. Making contact with a new range of actors of remarkable quality um, was a, another important gain for Powell and Pressburger through making 49th Parallel. Uh, it gave them uh, access to a whole new level of production, which neither of them had ever experienced before. Eric Portman, who plays the Lieutenant Hirt, uh, would remain central to one of their most interesting attempts to uh, penetrate the ideology of Englishness. He's got a central, very difficult part in the Canterbury tale, uh, playing the, the initially very unsympathetic figure of the frustrated company, the country's squire who wants to impart his hard-won knowledge to the new pilgrims brought to Canterbury by the war. And of course, another vitally important actor for Paul and Pressburger also made his debut in the film, as you've just seen him, the Viennese actor Anton Walbrook, who had initially come to Britain to play Prince Albert in two films about Queen Victoria, two Herbert Wilcox films. But with the outbreak of war, he found a new role playing the good German, articulating Powell and Pressburger's determination to explain that not all Germans were Nazis, first as the Hutterite settler in 49th Parallel, as you've just seen, uh, and then as Theo von Kretschmar Schuldorf in The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, which I'll be discussing uh, in the next session. 49th Parallel turned out to be a supremely well-timed gamble, made on an epic scale across Canada, many guest star appearances. It launched in October and November 1941, just weeks before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor precipitated America's entry into the war. And it confirmed Powell and Pressburger's determination to think ahead, to make films that addressed complex future propaganda issues. Michael Powell wrote at one point that a film takes at least a year to make. We have to be thinking at least a year ahead to what audiences might be wanting to see on the screen uh, at the point that we're conceiving a film. And so one of our aircraft is missing, a Canterbury tale, ultimately a matter of life and death, are all films conceived in that spirit of thinking ahead. But uh, how did um, Powell and Pressburger become the archers? benignly supported and, uh, as Michael wrote, left alone to pursue their own ideas by Arthur Rank. Well, durable partnerships were not unknown in 1940s British cinema. Uh, Frank Launder and Sidney Gilliatt would take turns to write or direct. The Bolting brothers, the twin Bolting brothers, uh, would also alternate directing and producing in their careers. And there was the Box family, which is incredibly difficult to sort out in your mind. There's Muriel Box on the left there, married to Sydney Box, and her sister-in-law is Betty Box. All boxes together. Very prolific uh, filmmakers uh, with the relationship between Muriel and Sydney, perhaps the most interesting one to us today. There were quite specific conditions in the British cinema of the early 1940s that actually encouraged close partnerships. Through a series of shrewd deals and some very unforeseen opportunities which came along, uh, Arthur Rank, the flour miller, rapidly became a near monopoly owner of most of British cinema between 1936 and 1941. It's a very strange story which I haven't got time to go into here, but basically one thing led to another. Finding that the first film that he produced, Turn of the Tide, couldn't get distribution, 
he bought the distribution company, finding that they weren't interested in making the kind of films that he thought should be being made, he got further into production. When Alexander Corda lost control of Denim Studios, there was a studio going. The total tally of what Rank owned by 1940-41 in terms of production facilities and cinemas is quite staggering. Um, he had become the accidental owner of British cinema. Having bought into all of these, he became a, a vertically integrated structure that meant he could control the whole cinema process from production to exhibition. But not only control, controlling was not the problem. The rank organization, or the empire, needed to have a steady flow of product to feed its hungry screens. The end of the process was screens demanding new films. The solution turned out to be forming a stable of small-scale production companies, united under the rank organization's umbrella, sharing some common production and financial facilities. These so-called independent producers, it was called Independent Producers Limited, um, were largely free to follow their own creative instincts. And they included a lot of future celebrities, such as David Lean and his partners in Cineguild, Londra and Gilead as individual pictures, and Powell and Pressburger as the archers. And I've just included some pictures here that show David Lean taking his first steps into direction, working with Noel Card. Soon he would move away from Noel Card and find his feet as a director, nourished by this little company, Cine Guild. That's Powell on set, shooting the great Turkish bath scene in uh, The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. And this is the unlikely sight of a British industrialist, producer, if you like, appearing on the cover of Time magazine, because Arthur Rank really did hold all the, the cards in terms of British cinema at this time. Each of these companies in independent producers functioned quite differently, and perhaps only the Archers were serious about being a creative company rather than a, a marriage of convenience. But what they shared through the 1940s was an extraordinary freedom from commercial pressures and the certainty that their productions would be efficiently and very widely exhibited. There was a choice, if you like, across the spectrum of independent producers. It's a fascinating experiment. Not enough has been written about it, in my opinion. There's still more to discover. And amazingly, there's no group photograph. I, I searched again recently to see if someone had found a group photograph of all the 15 or 18 creative figures who made up independent producers, but apparently they never got together for a group photo. So we haven't got that. But at the two extremes, we have Caesar and Cleopatra, the most expensive film made in Britain uh, up to that point by Gabriel Pascal, based on his unique relationship with George Bernard Shaw, uh, a ruinously extravagant film, which was much derided because it was not a box office success. It's actually a much better film than history as would allow a much more interesting film, but it was outrageously expensive for 1945. Powell and Pressburger, the archers, were extremely efficient and economical. Even though they made a film as long as Caesar and Cleopatra in Colonel Blimp, the film was efficiently made and was not unreasonably expensive. And it was fully backed by um, Arthur Rank. It's often been said that Arthur Rank had no interest in film himself whatsoever, no artistic judgment, no creative involvement. I don't think that's quite true. I think he had quite a strong bond with some of the filmmakers that he was supporting, and particularly, actually, with Powell and Pressburger. 
And the reason I say that is because, um, well, we have several indications of it. He, there are certainly more photos of him on the set of Powell Pressburger films than most of the films that he was producing. Here he is visiting the uh, Himalayas in Pinewood set of Black Narcissus. There are quite a number of photos like that. And he was also interested, I think, thematically in what the archers were interested in. I think he would have warmed very much to the theme of a modern pilgrimage in a Canterbury tale, which after all ends in, in Canterbury Cathedral with three pilgrims finding their blessing at the end of their quest. He hoped that Michael Powell might consider making a pilgrim's progress, which never happened, of course. But if you know a matter of life and death, you will know that there is a moment in heaven where John Bunyan appears and wishes um, the counsel for the defense um, the best of luck. And I think that's a little nod from Powell and Pressburger to Arthur Rank, to their patron, that they were well aware of his interests and his, his deeply religious interests. And uh, he, that, that reference to, to, to Bunyan, I think, to, and the Pilgrim's Progress is, is quite significant. So the archers had a motto. They had a wonderful target course, which I'm sure many of you know, which appears at the beginning of all the mid-1940s films with arrows thudding into the target. But they also had a little jingle by the critic James Agate, which goes, uh, which ends with, "'Tis better to miss Naples than to hit Margate." <laughs> and they're not being rude to Margate, <laughs> or that, that's not how they took it. Their version of Englishness remained cosmopolitan. Kipling quoted um, Kipling, uh, he was extremely well-read in Kipling, and he knew that Kipling was not the, the blimpish uh, imperialist that he was often taken for, or certainly not only that. And he, one of his favorite quotations was, what do they know of England uh, who only England know? And Emmerich Pressburger, having settled in what he felt would be his final country, Britain, uh, did in some ways become more British than the British. That's what his fellow countryman, George Mikesh, the Hungarian, who had also settled in Britain, said of Emmerich. But um, George Mikesh dedicated one of his last books, How to Be Decadent, to Emmerich. And the, the inscription reads, uh, to Emmerich, the only man I know who is not decadent, but he is still time to learn. <laughs> and the more you know about the circle of Hungarians who had come to settle in Britain, Mikesh, Pesperger, Arthur Kessler, quite a number of others, the more you realize that they were, in many ways, a remarkable group, highly cosmopolitan, but also extremely attached to their idea of Englishness and England. In fact, they, did, they made a great contribution to, to uh, supporting Britain in the 1940s in, in the post-war world. And interestingly, after the war was over, Powell and Pressburger would... Um, make a number of films, Black Narcissus and The Red Shoes, which actually take a more critical perspective on national identity. The heroines of both of these films are cruelly challenged by being taken out of pre-war England into foreign settings. Now, I want to move towards my end. I imagine you all know, um, I'm sure you do, but otherwise you probably wouldn't be here, um, that Powell and Pressburger signed their films with the very unusual joint credit written, produced, and directed by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. The decision to adopt this joint signature, which is very rare in cinema, 
indeed, was initially met with surprise and particularly with skepticism by Powell's agent, Christopher Mann, who had actually played a part in setting up independent producers. Why would a director want to cede any of his hard-won status to a mere writer, said Christopher Mann. Writers, of course, have always traditionally occupied a lower rung on the creative ladder in cinema. But for Powell, this marked a recognition that he had found a kindred spirit, a filmmaker who thought instinctively in terms of the shape and the structure of screen stories. And for Pressburger, it was no less of an epiphany, perhaps even more so, an Englishman who could think as he thought, and as he said, even anticipate what he was going to say and write. Now, during the years when film studies were establishing themselves, and this, this shows you um, some of the many programs that followed from after 1978, retrospectives of Powell and Pressburger, but during the years of their discovery, the um, the 80s, essentially, this is when film studies, the academic study of film, was establishing itself as a discipline. And the so-called auteur theory exercised a very powerful influence over what was studied and what was valued. You can see a, a diagram. I took this diagram from uh, revision notes for, I think, A-level film studies. It's still being taught, which worries me quite a lot. Um, it became rooted as one of the cornerstones, one of the foundations of study, learning to study film, to understand the distinction between an auteur and a mere director. Many people, many great filmmakers that you and I both know, insisted that they were directors. And yet many filmmakers today, of course, have been very happy to take on the mantle of being an auteur. Auteur has perhaps come to mean just a super director. I was once asked to help redraft the Oxford English Dictionary definition of auteur, it was not easy. So many incrustations have crept into this term. And I remember in the 1980s, it was extremely difficult to make sure that Emmerich Pressburger's name was attached to that of Michael Powell. It simply wasn't how people thought. There were Michael Powell films. Yes, many of them were written by Emmerich Pressburger. But for the pair of them, the joint signature was really important. It mattered. And eventually, I think we won the battle. And uh, as you can see from these programs, even the Cinémathèque Française, even the Museum of Modern Art in New York, accepted that these are films by Powell and Pressburger, with, of course, a number of films separately made by both of them before and after. So I'm going to be revisiting two of their greatest films, The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp and I Know Where I'm Going, in the next two sessions here, looking at how they were conceived and received in 1943 and 1945, and doing so in the light of what we know about how they were received then and what we know now with all the contextual information that we have. But I'm going to leave you with the explanation that Michael Powell gave of their partnership in 1985. This was one of their last joint public appearances. It, it followed that occasion that I mentioned earlier, the, the unveiling of Colonel Blimp, we invited them both to the National Film Theatre on London's South Bank. And uh, I'm going to show you the little, a little section of that long interview uh, which, um, in which Michael Powell explained their partnership very eloquently, I think. Part of a series of films that Emmerich and I made together. And people are always asking us, 
uh, first of all, how we got together, and then how we managed to work together for so long, something like 18 years, making about 20 films. And the, an the answer is love. You can't have a collaboration in anything without love. Any married men here? <laughs> and we had complete love and confidence in each other. And we were very lucky that just at that time we managed to prove to the man who had the money, and that was Rank, Arthur Rank, we managed to prove to him that he should let the filmmakers decide what they want to make. And that was really how Blimp came about, from an understanding with Arthur Rank, that we knew best what to do at this particular time in the middle of the war. Uh, at the NFT in, I think it was June 1985, we had um, a special guest who insisted on sitting in the front row rather than upstaging his two heroes. And uh, this is Martin Scorsese who sat through the whole, the bulk of the interview until he came up on stage. And of course in, in uh, 1985 he was um, already a, an extremely well-established filmmaker. He had grown up idolizing Powell and Pressburger and he's been one of the strongest motive forces in um, spreading appreciation and understanding of their work and has channeled a great deal of his own energy uh, into making sure that the films have been restored so that we now have wonderful versions of some of the 1940s films such as The Red Shoes and Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. Um, the occasion was one where we presented him with a script of what is his favorite Powell Pressburger film, The Red Shoes. And that's a rather nervous looking me wondering if Emmerich Pressburger will actually let go of it so that I can hand it over to Martin. <laughs> he did eventually, I'm glad to say. But it's a great occasion and I'm glad it was captured on video. I'm going to uh, stop there. I hope you'll be able to join me for the next two sessions and above all, I hope you'll be able to stay and see on a big screen um, 49th Parallel. Thank you.